Hi, this is Colin Shaw. Everyone at Beyond Philosophy are really proud that we've been recognised by the Financial Times as one of the best management consultancies in the UK. To celebrate, for a limited time, I'm offering to have a quick call with anybody who has any questions on how they can improve their customer experience. No obligation, just a genuine offer to try to help. Just wait till after the show and I'll give you the URL where you can book a quick call. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If your organization is using a satisficing rule to set your strategy, you're doing it wrong. If you're only looking to satisfy your customers, you're going to get nowhere because that's the minimum requirements that you have now. When we say people aren't rational, that doesn't mean the opposite. It doesn't mean that they're just monkeys banging on coconuts. People are rational. It's useful to think of people as rational, but not infinitely rational. So Ryan, when I bought my Lincoln Navigator, I wrote down this massive long spreadsheet. I looked at all the technical spec. I wrote down prices. I wrote down lease option, buying option, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Yep. And, you know, I compared it with different cars and everything else. But you know what? Actually, in the back of my mind, I was going to buy the thing anyway. Mm. And I was just looking for an excuse, I guess. This is the classic bit about the intuitive and the rational. Right. The intuition was saying, go and buy it. The rational was saying, no, you need to look into this in much greater depth because it's an important decision. Your rational system sounds like kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Given the, the attitude. Given that my rational system is half of me, that means that, correctly <laughs> so, I'm half a jerk. <laughs> Uh, I've seen worse than half. Uh, honestly, you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah. I aspire to be 75% of a jerk. Do you know that? <laughs> so I know we're going to be talking about something which is called bounded rationality. Bounded rationality. Yeah. Sounds a fun subject to talk about. It is, actually. This is another theory day here. This is one of the most important ideas in modern behavioral science. Right. So you and I talk a lot on this podcast and we did in the book about how people are not rational, right? And we laid out some evidence for it. And aside from some hardcore economists, it's not hard for most people to get on board with the idea that people are not robots that perfectly articulate everything and account for everything when they make the decision. Can I just interrupt there and say that I have met some chief financial officers that are of a similar ilk? <laughs> so let's say that most people are not purely rational, but hey, maybe they exist out there yeah. somewhere wearing those green accounting shades and not talking to other people. Sure. But yeah, so most people are on board with that. And you know, when you and I talk to people, they generally will get that. The problem is, what do you do with that? Right. So if we all kind of generally accept that the model of people being strictly rational is maybe not always that useful, what else do we have? And part of the reason that some people, you know, particularly, you know, those who are mathematically inclined push back on the idea that, oh, well, people are not strictly rational is then 
they kind of throw up their hands and say, well, then what? Are they just mindless animals? Yeah. So, you know, are we just going to treat people like dogs or like marshmallows that we can just kind of push around? Like if they're not rational, what are they? Sure. We've already talked in the podcast and in the book about one alternative model. And that's this two-system model, the idea that people have a rational mind and an intuitive mind, just like you were saying, and we have two different approaches for making decisions. That's kind of a newer model, a newer theory for approaching this idea that people aren't strictly rational. But there's an older one, dates back to the 60s, and it was developed by this guy named Herbert Simon. Now, you and I like to joke, mostly you joking at my expense, about how I am enamored of fancy words. Correct. And like to drop them on the podcast. And then we give you another one. I think this word is actually more highly used in England than it is in the US. But Herbert Simon was a polymath. A polymath. Do you guys ever use that one? No. So a polymath is somebody who's a genius in more than one way. A polymath. Okay. Polymath. Yeah. Right. Fancy word. Use it in a party, and depending on the party, you will either be the most or least popular person at that party. That means a genius in more than one field. Yeah, in more than one domain, more than one way. Okay. So Simon won a Nobel Prize in economics, and he was an economics professor. He was also, though, one of the very first computer science professors. He developed a lot of the theories that modern computing is based on. Right. He was a city planner, like an urban he was a psychologist. He was kind of good at all these things and made significant contributions in a lot of different areas. Just an amazing, amazing guy. Right. Okay. Interesting. One of the things that he did, the thing that we're most interested in today, is he had de- developed this idea of bounded rationality. So he argued, when we say people aren't rational, that doesn't mean the opposite. That doesn't mean that they're just irrational monkeys banging on coconuts. People are rational. It's useful to think of people as rational, but not infinitely rational. Right. People are rational, but they're bounded in their rationality. They have limits on what they can do. Within constraints, then, I guess. Exactly. Right. And the constraints are things that will not surprise us, right? So we have limited memory, for example. We have limited attention, limited kind of energy or capacity for thinking. We have limited information often, limited abilities to forecast the future. Dealing with people as strictly rational, none of those constraints apply. And so even your example, Colin, like when you talked about the rational side of yourself making a spreadsheet, yeah, you know, that is evidence of you trying to be rational. Yeah. But if you were rational, why'd you need the spreadsheet? You should have been able to track all this information, right? You're this robot, this computer who can automatically compute the likelihood of outcomes. Why did you need to use this tool of a spreadsheet? So even the use of a tool like a spreadsheet is evidence of bounded rationality. Yeah. If I'm being totally honest with you, the reason I built the spreadsheet was to justify to my wife why I should spend the money. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that is a... That is a hyper-rational use of the spreadsheet. Yeah. It's also knowing my wife. <laughs> Just this is a larger point. I don't feel like you need to ever justify the use of the spreadsheet. I'm a big fan of spreadsheets, and I use them routinely for things that most people wouldn't. Yeah. So again, from a layman's perspective, it's basically going, people are not, they're not computers. They don't just make rational decisions, but they're not the opposite of that. They're not irrational. They just don't make random decisions. Right. But there are constraints around the decisions that you make. 
So if you're told that there's a special offer and you've only got two hours to make a decision in and there's X amount of data available and you've just got a phone call from the boss to say that you need to go back to work or something like that, then all of those things are constraints that have been put upon you and then you're making a decision within those constraints, whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it, right? So one of the implications of this is that because we're bounded, because we have limitations and constraints, but we still want to act in a generally, you know, quote unquote, rational way, we develop these shortcuts, these heuristics. So we've yeah. talked about heuristics before in the podcast. I'll define it quickly for those who haven't, aren't fully up to date on our back catalog. Yeah. Heuristics are these decision shortcuts that we use that kind of approximate rational decision making, but that are much, much faster and easier. So we develop these rules that are usually pretty good and get us to pretty good decision outcomes, but that are very, very efficient. Yeah. So the best way I've always liked to describe it is it's a rule of thumb. Yes. Yep. You know, works X amount of time, but it's not perfect by any means. Not perfect, but good enough that it's worth it. Yeah. So in the discussion of heuristics, that sometimes gets lost, where heuristics are seen as some kind of mistake in decision-making, some kind of you know shortcoming of the human mind. And the reality is it's a very adaptive process. We use them so much because they work so well. But Simon, the same guy, Simon, he was the one who was one of the early champions of the idea of decision-making heuristics as a way of understanding human decision-making. He talked about one of, kind of the most enduring heuristics that we still, still use and still talk about. It was something called satisficing. Yeah, which yeah. It's a combination of the words satisfy and suffice. Yes. And the idea is that you'll sometimes make a choice not by trying to get the best possible outcome, but by trying to get the first outcome that's kind of good enough. Yeah. You kind of speed through things and there may be better outcomes out there. There may be better cars for you to buy somewhere, but you know what? I'll be reasonably happy with this one and that's good enough. And so you can stop looking at that point. Yeah, that's an interesting debate item, actually, because satisficing is interesting because, and again, it's the combination of satisfying and being sufficient. Yep. But certainly one of the things that I've always talked about has been the fact that one of the reasons why organizations are looking to improve their experience is because satisfaction means that I got what I expected. It's, it's nothing more, it's nothing less. Mm-hmm. And even the word sufficient means it's okay. Yep. It doesn't mean it's great. It doesn't mean that you're going to stand out from the pack. It just means it's reached the bar. So satisfying for me means it's it's reached the bar that goes, this is okay. It doesn't necessarily mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that someone's going to make a decision on that because it could be that the next option that they look at would be something that's going to give them a lot more, make them feel a lot better or give them a better emotional boost or a better physical, rational thought, i.e. it's half price or whatever. Does that make sense? Oh, no, that's exactly right. Right. So satisficing is very explicitly not optimal decision-making. Right. So you will be very lucky if you use a satisficing strategy and happen upon the best option for you. Yes. Because it is a very fast and easy way of making a decision. It still amazes me after I've been doing customer experience now since 2002, so a long time. 
it still amazes me. I walk into companies and I say, you know, what are you trying to do? And they say, we're trying to satisfy our customers. And I think to myself, that's just so 1980s, 1990s, you know. If you're only looking to satisfy your customers, you're going to get nowhere because that's the minimum requirements that you have now. I think you're raising a really interesting point here. We can look at this from kind of an organizational perspective, like how's your organization making decisions and what are their goals? And we can look at it from a customer perspective. Sure. So satisficing, as Simon defined it, I think was intended to describe empirically what the individual is doing. And again, he was not arguing this is what people should be doing. No. He's saying, but I think this describes how some people make decisions some of the times in certain circumstances. Good point. There's good and bad with it, right? It's very efficient. It's very easy. The bad is that you're not going to be making decisions. From an organizational perspective, if your organization, and organizations do this, if your organization is using a satisficing rule to set your strategy, it's like, well, this is like the easiest way of designing this experience that's kind of good enough. You're doing it wrong. Satisficing should not be your organizational goal. The flip side of this is if you understand that your customers are making decisions sometimes using satisficing, that can improve your customer experience, right? If you know that that's the way your customers are going into it, if you know they're not being strictly rational, that can help you redesign things. So sometimes firms will create something that's objectively better And then they'll be shocked and frustrated that customers aren't buying it. Sure. And this goes back to the idea that, you know, it might be better from a rational perspective, but not from an intuitive perspective. We can also look at it as it might be better from a rational perspective, but not from a boundedly rational perspective. If you realize that people aren't going to do a full inventory of all the toothpastes on the shelf every time they go shopping for toothpaste. Sure. Well, that's a boundedly rational way of making that decision. And so it doesn't matter that your toothpaste is now the best out there in all possible dimensions. Yeah. If people aren't going to pay attention or they're not going to remember. So the secret is when we've looked at designing new experiences, the secret is is understanding what are the elements of that bounded rationality. Yes. So what are the constraints that that customer has? So can you give me some examples of things that you've found when you've done your research from that perspective? Absolutely. I mean, it could just, from a basic perspective, it could just be time. It could be effort, you know, how much effort am I willing to put into this? It could be price. It could be how quickly are they going to get the service or the product, you know. So I guess all of those rational things, okay, but there's also sort of emotional things. And what I'm thinking now is there are things like I was listening to somebody describe this the other day that when they were a youngster, their brother got given some soccer boots that were made by Adidas. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that the Adidas, has, Adidas wear has got three stripes. Mm-hmm. And that was because his brother was really good at soccer. He wanted to get the same boots, but the parents didn't have enough money for that. So they went down the shops and bought a product that had four similar labels on. Yeah. <laughs> but the father <laughs> then took one of the labels on and painted the boot so it would sort of cover the markings. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I guess he was hoping that was satisficing, but actually the reality was from an emotional perspective, the person receiving it, it just wasn't good enough. So I think that there's the classic rational things that are rational, but within the rational, it's also, I guess, you know, how much poor service are you willing to accept before you say something and make a decision to, I don't know, walk out the restaurant or something like that.
also goes back into some of the things that we talk a lot about, you and I, and beyond philosophy in general. You know, some of the hidden rational things, which may sound a bit strange, but the one that I always remember is a work we did in a hospital system mm. where the perceived wisdom was that our customers had been saying to people that the key issue was to do with the amount of time that a doctor spent with the patient, okay? So that was like the bounded rationalism, you know, how much time am I spending? But actually, when you looked into it and you looked at, again, what was driving value, what you discovered was it wasn't the time that the doctor was spending with the patient. It was whether the doctor was listening to the patient. Yeah. Mm. So it articulated in a much different way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the bounded rationalism in that case is, well, it's to do with time. Well, actually, it's not to do with time. It's actually to do with whether the perceiving that person's listening to them. And therefore, again, as we're talking about decision making, and this becomes, again, the practical application of going, does somebody actually... If you now turn around to that person and say, was that a good experience or was that a bad experience? By definition, they're thinking, in quotes, about it within bounded rationalism to make a decision about whether it was or whether it wasn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me about that example from kind of a bounded rationality perspective is yeah. the use of time that the doctor spends with you is a heuristic. Right, Because what you care about is the quality of the medical service that you're getting. Is, is this person going to heal you? But how can you possibly evaluate that? You're bounded in your knowledge. You're bounded in kind of your understanding. So instead, you use a heuristic, which is, well, if the doctor is spending a lot of time with me, then he or she must be giving me good care. What is interesting to me about your research is it sounds like the hospital system felt like people were using that heuristic going in. And it sounds like in your research, you identified that they were, in fact, using a heuristic, but they were using a different heuristic than what the hospital system assumed. Yes. They weren't using time. They were using kind of quality of the listening as a heuristic. Neither of those things is necessarily strictly correlated with quality of care that you're getting. You know, we could put me into a hospital and put me in a smock and I can listen to you all day and give you terrible medical advice because I don't know anything about medicine. But somebody might perceive that as being really great care because that's the stand-in that they're using. That's the rule of thumb that they're using. So your research actually pointed them from one heuristic to another more accurate heuristic, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I guess following it down and without getting too technical, what we could prove through the research and through the maths, basically, is that listening to a patient or the patient perceiving that you are listening to them drove value and value is you know mm -hmm. increased customer satisfaction yep. or net promoter or revenue or spend or whatever it may be whatever the organization so what you could then start to go is well that heuristic is actually the key heuristic because it drives value but the interesting part is that I always find fascinating with this stuff is that the organization before we did the research would have said, okay, so the solution to the issue is, is rather than give the patient half an hour, we're going to give them an hour. Yeah. Now that's imposed a massive cost. Right. Yeah. Uh, but actually, you know what? It wouldn't have moved the dial very much yep. because you're now spending an hour and actually it can drive a poor experience right. because the customer's going, he just spent an hour with me, still hasn't listened to a word I said. 
and you've added all that cost in as opposed to going. Absolutely. So the answer is that the doctor now spends an awful lot of time, the physician spends an awful lot of time just putting information into a system, and therefore they've got to take their eyes off of doing that and look at the patient. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Because that's the key issue is whether they're looking at the patient and doing the nods and the ums and the ers and you know all those other things that acknowledge that you're genuinely and people will talk about active listening, whether you're actively listening to them. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know what? Rather than half an hour, you can take it down to 20 minutes if you do that. So now you're increasing value, but you're also saving costs as well, basically. Yeah, it's a great example. Again, let's look at this through the lens of bounded rationality. So if customers in that hospital system, patients, were strictly rational, then the only outcome they would care about is the health outcome. So if the doctor came in and anytime the patient started to talk, would shush them and just look right at the chart and say, okay, I have all the information I need. You need to take two of these, go home and call us back in the morning. And that worked. Sure. Then the patient should rationally be very happy with that because that was a very efficient use of time. They got the outcome that they wanted. They were in and out. But from a bounded rationality perspective, Oftentimes, that outcome is not transparent to us. So, yeah, we started to feel better, but maybe we would have felt better on our own. You know, maybe there's some side effects from the medicine. The outcomes are squishy enough that it's hard for us. We don't know. We're bounded in our ability to assess it. So we use these heuristics. And your example raises the important point that just knowing that people are boundedly rational is not enough. In what ways are they bounded that are predictive, that are associated with value, that are really driving their decisions? So let's go on and do our usual bit of what does that mean that people should do? Because I think you've actually hit the nail on the head when you start saying you need to understand the decision criteria or the bounded rationality, to put it in that, you know, how they're going to make a decision, basically. What are the constraints? And not just physical constraints, rational constraints, time, price, et cetera, et cetera, but emotional constraints and hidden constraints. And if you know that these are the things that customers are going to make a decision on in this situation, now you can start to manage that and design your experience. Yeah, that would be my takeaway too. I mean, I'll go back to the way you phrased it earlier, which is you said that you sometimes will engage in research from the perspective of trying to identify those bounds. Yeah, We know that people are bounded. Great. What are those bounds? Within those bounds, people are going to be rational. They're going to you know, try to maximize their utility and do the best option that they can. But what are those constraints that will lead them to make decisions in less than rational ways that are still predictable? Yeah. I mean, if you approach your research and your, you know, kind of customer insights from that perspective, I think that there's a lot of potential there. Great. Good. Okay. Well, I hope that's been of use for people today. And we look forward to talking to you next week. It would really help Brian and I if you could give us a review. If we could encourage you to go on to your wherever you're getting these podcasts and rate us and drop a nice comment, that would be absolutely wonderful. Rating and reviewing our podcast is the surest sign that you, dear listener, are a polymath. (laughs) This is really how you know. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and as usual, from next week, Ryan's going to eat another dictionary and Theosaurus and come up with some <laughs> new words for us to educate us all on what all of this means. I've actually run out, and so I'll just be making up <laughs> words from this point. Great. Okay, everyone, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll hopefully talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Hi, this is Colin. I said I'd be back with you after the show with the URL where you can book a quick call with me. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash meeting. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash meeting. Please remember this is only for a limited time only, so I would recommend that you book as soon as you can. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.